You know, one thing that has really always baffled me, it's really just always been something that's hard for me to get my mind around or wrap my mind around, is colorblindness. Uh, colorblindness has always just baffled me, and I don't know if you are the same way, uh, but since I'm not colorblind, it's hard for me to understand what it must be like to be able to see everything, but not be able to see exactly what everyone else sees. It's kind of baffling to me to think about colorblindness because they see everything just as fine as everyone else. They just don't see any color. Or they see some colors and not the other colors. And they aren't able to identify colors just like everybody else. And it's probable that in a room this size or people watching online that, that there may be some of you that are colorblind. And so you understand this from firsthand experience. I, I, I myself don't understand it from firsthand experience. Uh, in fact, I've been learning a lot from our newest minister, Craig Middleton. Craig Middleton is colorblind. I don't know if you know that. Uh, our new children and young families minister, he's colorblind. And so it's been fascinating getting to know him for a lot of different reasons. But one of those reasons for me is it's so interesting to hear about what it's like to be colorblind and, and what he has to go through uh, in that you know, everyday life. Getting to know him has been awesome, uh, but this is one of those things that's just so interesting to me, is his colorblindness. Uh, when you're colorblind, like I said, you can see everything in front of you. It's not like you're in any danger of like getting in a car crash or bumping into things. It's not like you are blind in that sense. You simply can't see color. And in talking to Craig, I've learned that he has learned what certain shades of things are perhaps this color. But he doesn't see the color. For instance, he could look at a shade of something and say, I know that's either red or purple, but I don't know which one. How interesting is that to think about? How interesting is that to think if, if, if you are like me and, and you have never experienced this, how difficult that must be growing up learning all the colors. Like everyone else, you can't do it. But it's so amazing that he's so adjusted to this way of life, Craig is, that you could hardly know it. I didn't say it right now. I'm sure he'd go years before any of you know it. And in fact, as we work beside him, sometimes we forget that he's even colorblind in the first place. Because we'll be working on something and it'll come out of nowhere and he'll remind us, hey, I'm colorblind. I remember uh, a few years ago on social media, I was scrolling through social media, I was seeing some videos, and I came upon a video that there were these sunglasses that allowed people who were colorblind, it allowed them to see color for the first time. It was these special pair of sunglasses that they would put on and, and they could see color just like everyone else because of the way the light refracted off of those lenses and, and the special technology of those lenses and every one of those videos I've seen I've seen many since that time every one of those videos are so emotional to me uh, so emotional when you watch these videos because here are these people who have never seen color they put these glasses on and all of a sudden there it is Every one of these videos are so emotional to me because every single time these people are brought to tears. They're outside in maybe a park or outside and they put these sunglasses on. For the first time, they're, they're able to see the color in the flowers and the color in the trees and in the grass and in the sky and and every single time in these videos, you can see that, that they have this awesome amazement as they put these glasses on. They have so much appreciation all of a sudden, a whole greater appreciation for God's creation. Something that most of us take for granted each and every day. It 
they don't because they have experienced what it's like not to be able to see it. With these glasses on, they can see the sky and the leaves and the flowers just like everyone else. And if you're curious about these videos I'm talking about, look up in chroma glasses when you get home. These are the glasses that allow you to do that, in chroma glasses. You'll see what I'm talking about. Tonight, can you imagine what it would be like? never be able to see, you simply have to guess what something really is. Never being able to know for yourself, you grow up your entire life thinking one thing, and then you put these glasses on, an entirely different thing comes true. Tonight, we're going to be seeing something that just like that, that happens in the history of Christianity. We're going to be looking at a moment in time where the world was finally able to see in full color, so to speak. We're going to be looking at a time where it was finally time for the world and Christianity and the church not just to assume, not just to take someone else's word for it, but to see it for themselves. We are engaged in a two-quarter study on the restoration movement, on the church of Christ, the church of our Lord, and how we got to the point we are at tonight. Thus far, our study has taken us many different directions as we have studied this. Uh, in phase one of our study, we've been looking at this introduction to the study where we've seen the biblical basis for restoration and God's expectation for us to restore things when things get off the rails and when things get off track, God's Word, time and time again, sets this expectation of restoration. And we've also been able to talk about this restoration that we are aspiring to is, is nothing short of restoring the church to what God intended for the church to be. And we've also taken the time to realize if we're going to do that, we cannot depart to the left or to the right. We cannot add or take away. We cannot loosen where God has bound, and we cannot bind where God has not bound. And that was our introduction into this movement. But last week we started phase two of our study together, where we're going to be talking about the foundation of the movement and why there was a need for restoration in the first place. And to do that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning, right? All the way back to where things really started falling off the rails. Because before we can talk about the formation of our movement, we have to understand and talk about the foundation of why there needed to be a movement in the first place. So like I said, we went all the way back. Remember, if you were here last week with us, we went all the way back to ancient Rome. Remember, we went to Rome and we, and we saw that as these different edicts were coming through the government, it was something that initially was time to celebrate. Right? This edict of toleration means there's going to be less persecution. Woo! This edict of Milan means that uh, we are an accepted religion just like everyone else. Okay. This edict of Thessalonica means that we are the chosen religion of Rome. How great is that? But yet, even though it seemed to be great at first, we talked about how we need to be careful what we wish for, right? And we saw that each time the church got more and more legalized, in the government, we saw that they were less and less persecuted. And when that happened, the church got further and further away from the truth, further and further away from God's intent that we find in Ephesians 5 and verse 27, our, our theme verse for our class. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, but that she should be holy blemish. And so we ended up talking about the church as if the church was like this overgrown sheep. 
after Rome was done with it, the church was just like this overgrown sheep that had been left in the wilderness for years and years. And we talked about if we're going to rehabilitate this sheep, if, if we're going to save this sheep's life, we're going to have to cut back all of those layers, those years and years worth of layers that were put on the sheep, this year's worth of wool. If we're ever going to see that beautiful, cute-looking sheep, we're going to have to cut back some of those layers. And that's a painful process. There are some nicks, there are some bruises, and there's some blood along the way. But that's what it means to restore something back to its original Tonight, as we get started tonight, remember last week where we left off. The church is as ugly a sheep as it has ever been or ever will be at the beginning of our lesson tonight. This sheep that represents the church has just been discovered in the wilderness after a thousand years of darkness. The Edict of, Toler or the edict of uh, Cunctus Populos we were talking about Theodosius I, remember, that was the edict that made it possible for the church to be the church of Rome. That was in 380. Our study tonight is a thousand years later in the 1300s. After a thousand years of Roman Catholic influence to the church, that's where we find our sheep tonight. After a thousand years of drifting to the left and drifting to the right, after a thousand years of adding and a thousand years of taking away, after a thousand years of binding where God has not bound and loosening where He hasn't loosened. You know, we never really think about it this way, but land is not the only thing that the Roman Empire conquered. The Roman Empire also laid claim to Christianity. And tonight, after a thousand years of Rome doing whatever they wanted, when it came to doctrine, when it came to rules of faith and practice and worship and whatever it might be with Christianity, after a thousand years, there's almost too many problems but if we were going to look at one, if we were going to look at all the problems of the church in the 1300s, there is one that is a symptom of the rest. There is one core problem that the church in the 1300s faces that all the other problems are rooted in and stem from. What is the number one issue with Christianity in the 1300s, you may say, or ask? Well, the greatest problem in the church in the 1300s was the fact that the average Christian, the average person going into church, the average congregant going to worship God had no idea how far away they had. The average member had no idea how far away from God's Word they had gotten. The average member had no idea what the original intent God had set for the church was, and that's because they could not know. It's not, a, it's not an oversight. It's simply the fact that they were unable to know. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Tonight we're going to be talking about that first domino. That domino effect that rolled through the next few hundred years. And the dominoes that continue to fall tonight in our study of the restoration movement. In the beginning of the 1300s, if you do any study in church history, you're going to see that there was a growing desire for the Bible to be translated into English. 
there was a growing desire among the church that the Bible be translated into English because at that time, English had become the common language. At that time, it had finally become the common tongue that the most people throughout the earth, most of them spoke English by this point. And so it's only natural that the Bible then be translated into English, right? Makes sense. If most people speak English, let's translate this thing into English, right? Oh, but that was the last thing that the Catholic Church would ever want was for the Bible to be translated into English. The last thing the church in Rome would want is for the average person to be able to discern for themselves what was right and what was wrong. The last thing the Roman church could possibly want is for the average Joe member to know anything about the Bible. Because they knew the moment people got their hands on the Bible, people would realize how far off it had gotten. At this point in history, when congregants and, and when people would go to worship and go to study God's Word and go to study the Bible, people would come to worship God. They were forced to listen. Bible be read from the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate, if you don't know, is a translation from the Koine Greek into Latin. And so these people in the 1300s are listening to people preach from the Latin Bible, the Latin translation, although they had no idea what was being said. In no way did they understand what the preacher or the priest or the bishop or whoever it was what in the world they were saying because they were speaking and teaching from this Latin Vulgate. Instead of being able to come together and understand what was being taught and understand what was being preached and apply it to their life, they were forced to take whatever that man who spoke behind that pulpit said in another language I don't understand because Latin at that time in history was a language that only the educated understood. You'd have to go to school to understand Latin at that point. So only the educated knew how to understand Latin. And so you have these generations and generations and generations of people over the years and over time who had absolutely no idea what was being said or taught from. Imagine you came to study God's Word tonight and you didn't have one for yourself to read. You didn't have one. You didn't have one that was yours. You didn't have a copy of it that you could check what was being taught or, or check what was being said. And, and even if you did get your hands on a copy of one, it was in a language you didn't understand. Written in a language you have to go to school to understand. Imagine not being able to keep the person accountable if they went off the rails. So therefore, they went off the rails. Imagine not being able to search the Scriptures for yourself daily to see if these things were so, as Acts chapter 17 talks about with those Berean Christians. Imagine that. This isn't a hypothetical. This happened. This happened. People did not have God's Word. So imagine what it must have been like to be one of these Christians at that time. Instead of being able to listen to God's Word for themselves, regular members were forced to listen to God's Word from a man spoken in a language they could not even understand. And because of this, you may think that this is not a true story. This is absolutely true. They would chain the Bible to the podium. In the 1300s, they would chain the Bible, physically chain the Bible to the pulpit. There was only one copy in town, and it was chained, chained to the pulpit. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine that, that the only Bible in town was chained to that pulpit and only the, the, the priest or the bishop or whatever the Catholics were doing, only that guy could touch that Bible and unchain that thing and look at it. The rest of you could not get even close. They had to chain it to the pulpit because people started getting it because they needed to learn. People, as I said, were thirsting for God's Word. This is something I think is hard for us to even understand. Tonight. This kind of culture and society where you don't have access to God's Word. And the reason they chained that Bible to that pulpit is probably mul multiple reasons. It was, they were expensive. It was expensive to get a Bible. It was expensive to copy the Bible because there was no printing press. Maybe that's a logistical reason. More so, they chained that thing to the, to the pulpit. They chained the Bible to the pulpit because they didn't want the common member to get their hands on it. They didn't want the common member to get their hands on the Scriptures because they knew just how detached from Christianity they had gotten from the original intent that God had. And so we see them throughout many, 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 many years keeping the Word of God hostage. Keeping the Word of God hostage from everyone else for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you know what happens when generations and generations of people don't know God's Word, aren't able to hear God's Word, aren't able to listen to God's Word, do you know what happens when generations and generations of, of people cannot understand God's Word for themselves? It breeds and it gives birth to a spiritual, a spiritually illiterate world. It gave birth to a completely illiterate world where no one understood what God's will was what God wanted for their life, and what God wanted for His church. The Catholic Church was able then to teach whatever they wanted, however they wanted, and that is exactly how they wanted it to remain. Instead of people depending on God and, and His Word and His will and His expectations and His commandments and His pattern, these people were now forced to depend on a man telling them right from wrong, telling them what they should believe. And as the years passed, we can see, we can imagine exactly what happened. As the years roll on, the sheep that we were talking about earlier just gets uglier and uglier, right? More and more layers of wool added on to that sheep. You know, there were many people who sought to translate the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate, into English. There were many people who, who sought to translate that, the, the Bible. But you've got to realize that there were people back then, just as there are people now, who think that their version's the best. You ever know somebody that thinks the King James Version came down in a golden parachute signed by Paul himself? Ever know somebody like that? It ain't the King James Version, it ain't for me. Right? You ever know somebody like that? Well, just like there are people like that, there were people then, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, who said the only version, the only God-ordained version is the Latin Vulgate. It's no question why they would say something like this. Remember last week we were talking about the Edict of Thessalonica? For Theodosius, this is what makes Christianity the religion of Rome. Remember? What, what, what year does that say up there? 380. That happened in the year 380. Does anyone know when the Latin Vulgate was made? In the year 382. Okay, so just a couple of years later, they make this Latin Vulgate. And so this has been the only translation of the Bible for a thousand years by the time we get to the 1300s. This has been the only translation of God's Word for a thousand years. 
from the very beginning of Christianity being the official religion of Rome, this was their translation and they were sticking to it. Kyle talked about some of this and his how we got the Bible class. He talked about uh, a couple of figures we're going to be talking about tonight. In brief, we're going to be talking about in full. So that's where the, the church is in the 1300s. Completely spiritually destitute, spiritually illiterate. They had absolutely no idea what God's Word said because for however many generations they were listening to a language they could not understand. And then. And then a guy named John Wycliffe. Some people say Wycliffe. I'm going to say Wycliffe. Why? Because I'm teaching. Right? John Wycliffe. Just going to keep it simple. John Wycliffe comes around and, and he has this desire to translate the Bible into English, come what may. He was born in 1320. He died in 1382. This is one of the most important figures in the history of Christianity. In the history of church history itself, John Wycliffe might be one of the most important. And the reason is, Wycliffe was a student in Oxford. He had a, a emphasis in biblical studies and so what happened was he was raised in the Roman Catholic Church just like anyone else was at that time. Well he gets to school and he starts to learn guess what? Latin and Greek. And so when he starts learning these languages guess what he starts to do? What is this? He starts to see time and time again blatant and egregious compromises in doctrine. And what happens? The light bulb goes off. As he starts to study these, these compromises and as he starts to study these times that the church drifted to the left and, and drifted to the right, he says to himself, well, if I never knew that, I guess everybody else who hasn't ever studied these languages didn't know it either. And so all those people back home that are just listening to these guys have no idea what's really going on. And so he has this light bulb moment to himself. And guess what? It didn't really happen that far into his studies. Really quickly after he started studying these languages, he compared what the Catholic Church had to say with what God's Word actually had to say. And he had this light bulb moment. If these are the false teachings I'm reading about here, and it must be false teachings all throughout the world. And so this discovery led him to have this desire within himself, this immovable desire, come what may, I'm going to translate the Bible into English. Whatever happens, happens. At that time, he had no copy of the original Greek. He was translating from a translation. That's not as accurate as it needs to be. But think about the limitations he had. He couldn't translate from the original Greek because nobody had copies of that either. So he translates from a translation the best he could. This discovery, as I said, makes him devote the rest of his life to translating the Bible into English so that anyone and everyone could study for themselves what God's will is. And as he studied the Bible, he began to realize more and more doctrines that the Catholic Church had erred on. He starts to study more and more about how Christ is the head of the church. He studies more and more and he can't find the word Pope in the New Testament. He studies more and more and he realizes the, the whole thing about praying the Lord's Supper into the actual literal body of the Lord. That's not there. He studies more and more about the bishops and the process and the, all the religious dogma of the Catholic Church and he sees more and more about how it's not in the Bible. And as he has this light bulb moment, others start to realize it too. They start to realize that this whole the Pope is infallible thing is ridiculous. 
the Pope can't be infallible because the Pope is just a man just like me and you. So the Pope has to be subject to this just like anybody else has to be subject to this. And so he begins to question every doctrine of the Catholic Church. But understand, he could only do that because he understood the languages. This is something that everybody else would have been doing all these many years if they could understand the languages like him. And so as he pursued to translate the Vulgate into English, we can see, as I said, he started getting students. He started getting these people that wanted to help him and, and believed in his cause and believed in the things he was saying about the church, and he got more and more students to himself. And so John Wycliffe was able to do some very groundbreaking work when it comes to translating the Bible into Sadly, though, he couldn't finish that pursuit because he died from a stroke suddenly in 1382. That legacy that he started lived on for hundreds of years after him. Hundreds of years after him, that legacy lived on. Let's see if we can advance the slide, somebody. Anybody? Bueller? Nobody? Kevin? Next slide. going to see how long it takes. All right. Here's a quote from uh, some studies I was having. It says, William Courtney, the Archbishop of Canterbury, condemned 24 of Wycliffe's views. Again, this is after he had died. 24 of Wycliffe's views and ordered that he no longer teach. After his death in 1382, Wycliffe's followers, known as the Lollards, or the Mumblers, continued to spread his teachings, but due to persecution, they were forced to do so as an underground movement. Isn't that interesting? What's something I noticed from this quote? When did it say that uh, he died? It said that he died in 1382. When was the Latin Vulgate created? 382. This man died. He had his whole pursuit to translate the Bible into English, to translate the Latin Vulgate, exactly a thousand years after that original one was written. How amazing is that? Just an interesting note. But you can see what the Catholic Church tries to do here. They try to demean these people by just calling them mumblers. They, they aren't really talking about anything important. They're just mumbling. Even though these were the people that were actually seeking the truth, actually seeking to pull the blindfold off and seeking to discover God's will, here they are getting discredited by being called mumblers. And so they continue on, shining that light, that light bulb, and continue on blowing the whistle, so to speak. And then in 1411, we have another quote. In 1411, Wycliffe's impact continued on. Even after his death, Wycliffe continues to make a difference. So much so that the archbishop writes this letter to the pope himself about John Wycliffe. This is what it says. Calls him a pestilent and wretched man. Okay, This petulant and wretched John Wycliffe of cursed memory, that son of the old serpent endeavored by every means to attack the very faith and sacred doctrine of the Holy Church, devising to fill up the measure of his malice to the expedient of the new translation of the Scriptures into the mother tongue. Well, how dare you, John Wycliffe? How dare you try to translate the Bible into the, into the mother tongue, right? To us, we look at that and we think that's kind of ridiculous. Why was this such a big deal? Why was this such a big deal that Wycliffe do that? And they talk about him as if he's a snake, literally. But it's because Wycliffe and the people that were trying to translate the Bible into English were the greatest threat to the Catholic Church. The greatest threat to the Catholic Church was that Bible get into the hands of people that couldn't understand it. How sad is that? What if the greatest threat is people better not find out what we're up to because if they do, we're going to be in trouble. That's what the Catholic Church was acting like in the 1300s. Four years later, in 1415, the Catholic Church officially deemed Wycliffe a heretic. And this means that they could take all the things that he wrote, all the things that he said, all the things that he did, they could take all of that and burn it. Why? Well, because remember we talked about the marriage of church and state last week. It wasn't separation of, it was the marriage of. 
And so we have this coterminous relationship we talked about. And so the church depends on the government, and the government depends on the church. And so at this time, it's time for the government to come in and burn everything that Wycliffe ever said or did. And that's exactly what we see them do. They burn everything he wrote and everything he said and everything he did, but those copies of those English translations live on. By the way, if you think that's crazy, just watch this. I don't know, this is kind of grainy, but this is the best representation I could find of what the Catholic Church wound up doing. Because in 1428, the Catholic Church went to the grave of John Wycliffe. They were so mad at this man for causing this movement. Guess what they did? They went to his grave and they dug him up. And they burnt his bones into ashes. That's what you're seeing. This is a this is a, a, a depiction of that. This is a depiction of, of them going to his grave and you can see the fire there and you can see them getting the bones. They burned his bones 40 years after he had been dead. He had already been dead for 40 years and they hated this man so much that they dug up his bones and burnt him into ashes. Imagine being so worried about losing power that you do this to try to send a message. As we know tonight, because we're all here and we all have one, the Catholic Church failed in keeping the English translation from the world. And Wycliffe is a huge reason why. Even though he was dead, his impact continued on. Because men like William Tyndale came after him. A hundred or so years later, William Tyndale continued the work of translating the Bible into English. In 1440, the Gutenberg Press is invented, and that makes it easier for Tyndale to do this. It makes it easier for Tyndale to do this because Wycliffe didn't have the version of the Koine Greek. Well, Tyndale does. So Tyndale doesn't have a translation of a translation. He has a translation of the original. And so we have this amazing translation come down from William Tyndale. The printing press allowed that to happen. And in 1526, we see the final full translation of the New Testament into English. In 1526, Tyndale published the entire translation of the New Testament. But guess what happened to him ten years later? Ten years after he had finally completed the mission of Wycliffe and all those who had came before him, ten years later, even Tyndale himself was strangled burned at the stake because he had the audacity to translate the New Testament into English. Even though Wycliffe and Tyndale were separated by over 150 years by that point, they succumbed to the same fate from the hands of the same people seeking to keep God's word for themselves and themselves alone. Both were killed and both were murdered so that you and I could sit here with this tonight. Man, isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild to think about? And we, As we try to understand and we try to wrap all of this up into something that matters tonight, isn't that crazy to think about? That this isn't just, you know, a dramatic... TV show or a movie you're watching, this happened. This happened in history. As we try to bring it all together, do you realize what you hold in your hands tonight? Yes, I know, we all know it's the Word of God. But do we realize how blessed we are to have it? how blessed we are to have the access to it that we have. Today we may have two or three Bible apps on our phone with different translations and interlinear uh, things that we can look for resources. And they go with us wherever we go. And so wherever we go, we have the Bible along with us. We have the ability to listen to it being read to us. I don't know how many times we are in church and 
someone's phone starts reading the Bible out loud, right? We've, we've all heard that. What a blessing! Now, I don't, we don't even have to read the thing. It's, it's read for us out loud. We have the most access to God's Word of any generation, any time that has ever lived on earth. In our pocket. And it may be even true of most families here tonight that there are dozens of copies of the Bible in your home. I remember growing up, uh, we had a family of five. We had three kids that were all playing different sports, all doing different things. It was chaos. Bless my mama and daddy for doing it, right? We had an Astro fan. This thing was glorious. In the back of that Astro van was a, a bag for baseball, a, a, a football cleats, football pads, helmets, uh, jerseys, dirt, every which way. But you know what else was in the back of that Astro van? A big old Rubbermaid tub. You know what we called it? We called it the Bible box. In the midst of all of this chaos in the back of that trunk, we had a Bible box full of, box, full of Bibles. We only had five people in the family, but I guarantee you there were 36,000 Bibles in this one box for one family that was constantly having a bag thrown on top of it or whatever it might be with three crazy kids, right? We won this Bible at this camp or this Bible at this VBS or, or whatever it might be. And so the Bible's just stacked up and stacked up and stacked up. Maybe you can relate tonight with something like that in your own family. But tonight, imagine not only having limited access to the Bible, imagine not having it in a language you can even understand. Imagine that you had a copy of the Bible, but it was chained to the pulpit and no one could touch it. think that the preacher is boring today? Imagine the preacher you had to listen to was speaking in a language you had no idea what was being said. And he was responsible for feeding you spiritually. How long would it take before you were malnourished? How long would it take before you and nobody else around you knew up from down anymore? Tonight, if you got nothing else out of this lesson, I know it's been very history. We're about to get into God's Word, I promise. Maybe you're not a big fan of history, and this type of lesson just took you back to a world history class back in the day. I hope you see why this lesson matters. I hope you can understand why this lesson matters tonight. Because if got nothing else out of this lesson tonight, if you got nothing else, please get the message that you should get on your knees praying thanks to God that we have the access to God's Word we have tonight. That we have copies of God's Word all around us. Words that we often take for granted in everyday life. Because more so in our life, instead of something we can hardly put down, like a good book that we, else, we elsewise like, books like uh, some series we're in love with, we can hardly put the book down, right? Sadly, the Bible today is something we can hardly pick up, it feels like. Sometimes, and in some families, and sometimes in my life, it's the last thing I pick up something collecting dust on the shelf. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. He says it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for everything. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter says, As his divine power 
has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His glory and virtue. And lastly, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. Paul says, How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the, obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Tonight I want you to imagine that you live in a time you don't have access to all the scriptures. I want you to imagine that you lived in a time where you weren't able to profit from doctrine. You weren't able to be reproved or corrected. You weren't able to be instructed in righteousness. And because of this, you were never able to be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. imagine you lived in a time where there was no way for you to know how to live God this has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness well you now live in a time where you have no idea what it takes to live godly and righteous because you had never had anyone speak to you in a language you could understand you didn't know what it took to lead a faithful life. Because faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. And you lived in a time where you couldn't have faith and you never heard. And then, what a passage in Romans chapter 10. Four times in that passage he says the word how. Paul says, how shall they call on Him? How shall they believe? How shall they hear? How shall they preach? My question is, how could the church at this point in history look anything better than a mangled, overgrown sheep that we talked about earlier? It's no wonder the church looked like it did in the 1300s. Do you see why it's important to study what we study tonight? Because this, what we talked about tonight, is what happens when this book is shut and never read. What we talked about tonight is what happens when this book only collects dust. Chaos. How much chaos? How about digging up somebody's bones 40 years after they're dead just to burn them to send a message? That's the level of chaos that happens when this is not open. Praise the Lord tonight that you live in a time where you can see the will of God and you can have it at your fingertips any moment. Praise the Lord that we don't have to depend solely upon a human being to teach us the Word of God anymore. With all of their biases and all of their opinions, we can open it up for ourselves. We can study to show ourselves to prove unto God like those Berean Christians. Praise the Lord that we are able to be instructed in righteousness, that we are able to be reproved, corrected, get all the doctrine we could possibly take. Praise the Lord, we can live godly lives because we have heard and we have grown in our faith. Praise the Lord that we find ourselves tonight on this side of history. 
our study tonight has brought us all the way from the 4th century last week, the 300s, all the way to the 16th century after Tyndale finished his translation. I hope you've been able to stay with me. But because of the sacrifice of Wycliffe and Tyndale, the English translation is now in the hands of anyone who wants it. Anyone can understand God's word and understand God's will. The question is, though, now that everyone can understand God's word, in the 1500s, now that everyone can understand God's word and everyone has a copy of God's word and everyone can see the errors of the Catholic Church and everyone can see the flaws of man and everyone can see what God's expectations really are and what the pattern really says and what he intended intent at the beginning. Just like those glasses we talked about at the beginning of the lesson. People have been going around thinking they knew what they were looking at. Thinking they knew what the church was and what God's word was. Just like those glasses, they came on. Just like that light bulb Wycliffe saw came on in their lives. And now everyone can marvel and be in awe at what God's word actually looks like and what it actually says. What's the fallout of that going to be? What's going to happen now that everybody has a copy of it? Everybody can go to their priest, and everybody can go to their bishop, and everybody can go to their religious leader and say, hey, I don't see that here. Well, the fallout of that and the next domino is going to fall. But that is to be... Let's go to God in a word of prayer before we leave. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the day that you blessed us with to come together and to study another portion of your word to fully grasp how grateful we should be and thankful we should be for the copy of your word that we have with us tonight in a language we can understand and apply to our lives in the access that we have to it every day. We pray that we won't grow tired of your word as if something we can take for granted but that it will live in us through us. Thank you so much for the men and women who came before us, sacrificed so much in a time of spiritual illiteracy for us to be literate tonight. Lord, thank you for that blessing. We pray that uh, we can stand on their shoulders in some respects and carry on what they started. Lord, thank you so much for son who ultimately gives us the example of who to follow and who to be inspiring to be like. In his name we pray.